0: We are continuing this morning with our study through the book of 1 Timothy. Uh, We're going to be looking at the last few verses of chapter 3, which are verses 14 through 16. The verses that we're looking at really are considered really the theme of the whole book, of the whole letter. (laughs) Paul left Timothy in Ephesus to give pastoral leadership to a church that had some significant problems. Some of the leaders were teaching strange doctrines, and this was having obviously a bad effect on the church. Timothy was, had certainly heard Paul teach about the right ordering of the church. He had served as a fellow worker with him for many years. Now, Paul is writing these things down for Timothy, for the church, and really for us to read and understand. So to this point, he's emphasized the need to hold firm to sound doctrine. Uh, which includes speaking to those who teach strange doctrines. He has emphasized the importance of prayer. He's talked about the roles of men and women in the church. He's given clear teaching on choosing who should be the elders of the church, who should be the deacons of the church. And there's such an importance of the church that it just kind of permeates through this letter, and we'll see this very clearly this morning, but even before we get to these verses that we're looking at this morning, it's already been kind of not just hinted at, but really implied quite directly. And that part of it is, for, is uh, even as Paul finished up what he was saying about the, about the ministry of deacons in the verses right before, in verse 13, he spoke about what a privilege it is to have an honorable standing in the church of all places. What a privilege to have an honorable standing in the church. Uh, service is highly valued by the Lord. And then we also see the importance of the church in 1 Timothy 3.1, when he was talking about the office of elder and pastor, he said, it's a fine work. Well, why is it a fine work? Because it's the work of shepherding the flock of God, shepherding the church. So, in the churches that were, the verses that we're looking at this morning, uh, Paul gets very specific in talking about the glory that God has placed on the local church. So 1st Timothy 3, 14 to 16. Paul says, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how, how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. First thing we see is in verse uh, 14 there that Paul had every intention of coming to visit Timothy in Ephesus as soon as he could after he wrote this letter. He knew that his plans often changed unexpectedly, so he knew there was a real possibility of an unexpected delay uh, in that visit. This is really just kind of a casual statement, so to speak, of, you know, Paul just giving some uh, detail about that so Timothy would understand. But I think it gives us some important insight into how Paul made decisions. Think about it. Here's an apostle. Here is a man that God spoke through, enabling him to write inspired scripture, to write the very words of God. None of us have that. Paul did. A unique office, he was called to his office of apostle. If anyone could ask God to show him whether he was going to be able to visit Timothy earlier or later, I think it'd be Paul. But that's not what happened. Paul approached this situation like he did many of his decisions when he was apostle. He approached it with wisdom. Yes, he was trusting God's guidance. He was trusting God's word. He was submitting himself to God's lordship, to God's providence. And he just says, I'll come when I can. I just don't know if it's going to be sooner or later. I don't know. We need to be careful about saying that we are certain God told us to do this or that. If Paul couldn't say that, you probably can't either. Paul has then and will continue to give instruction to Timothy about how one ought to conduct themselves in the household of God. But what I want to focus on this morning is the amazing things Paul said about the church. Three descriptions he gives in verse 15 address the character and the mission of the church, and then in verse 16 we see what the message of the church is. So let's look first at this, the character and mission of the church. The three descriptions that Paul uses of the church are these. It's the household of God. It's the church of the living God. It's also the pillar and support of the truth. So we'll look at them one at a time. First, the church is the household of God. The word here used here is the word oikos. It can mean either a dwelling place, like a house, or an immediate family or household. So from that word, we see first that the church is is God's special dwelling place. Now, first, we've got to remember here that God is spirit. Because God is spirit, he fills all things. He is everywhere. But it's also true that there are times and places where we see God clearly manifesting his presence in special ways. The church is God's special dwelling place. And we're not talking about the building where the church gathers in, it would be very rare for a, for a, a church in the first century to have, have a building like this that they met in it's not the building he's talking about it's the people that are assembled together the believers who are assembled when he's speaking of this how this special dwelling place 1 Corinthians chapter 3 says this about the church he says do you not know that you Now, I'm going to point this out as I read through it. The word you here is plural, so you all. Do you not know that you all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you all? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him, for the temple of God is holy, and that is what you all are. Now, there's also scriptures that says we are individually uh, temples of God, temples of the, the Spirit. But here, he says the church as a whole, the gathered church, is the temple of the Spirit, a sanctuary of God. In Ephesians 2.19, he says, You are no longer aliens, strangers, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You are of God's household. Now there, just to give you a little context, Paul was especially speaking to Gentile Christians, which probably most all of us are. When he said, you're no longer strangers and aliens, because in verse 12, earlier in that chapter, he had said Gentiles were separate from Christ. They were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. They had no hope. They were without God in the world. But now in Christ, that's no longer true. Jew and Gentile alike are now the very sanctuary of the Lord because of Christ. Faith in Christ, Jew, Gentile alike are this God's sanctuary. So the gathered church is that special place where God has chosen to manifest his presence. Second, the church is God's family. God's family. The image of a household is not only a dwelling place, but also that of a family. Ephesians 1.5, we are told that God predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And then in Galatians chapter four. 4-7, through he gets even more specific about this uh, work of adoption. says, When the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then you're an heir through God. So in Christ, every believer is an adopted son or daughter of God. I mean, just truly amazing to think about that, but it's true. Jesus said to enter the kingdom of God, you had to be born again. You had to be born from above. Well, Jesus is described as the firstborn among many brethren. God is called our father. The only ones who can rightly call him father are those who are his born-again adopted children. So it only makes sense that one who is a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ would be an active part of his family, of his household. It's a family where we not only have God as our father, but we have each others as brothers and sisters in Christ because Jesus is the firstborn among many brethren. So the church is the household of God. That's something no other institution can claim. Next, we see the church is the called out assembly of the living God. Next phrase he says is the church of the living God. The word for church speaks of a gathering of of people, uh, maybe it's more specifically citizens there, but people in general who are called out from their home to a special assembly. Well, the assembly that Paul is speaking of is more than just a meeting It's a gathering of sons and daughters of God, the household of God. So how does a person become a son or a daughter of God? It's by a work of grace in our hearts. So we need to see here next that the church is made up of people who have been effectually called by God to be his children. This is not just a call that you get on the telephone or you get by text, says, meet me here, come to this place for the meeting, this is a call to turn from sin, put your faith in Christ, and this is a call that includes the ability to change, to see that transformation take place. In 1 Peter 2.9, we read, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. You're a holy, set-apart nation, a people for God's own possession. In other words, you're a church belonging to the living God so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you. He's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So this call of God brings one out of the darkness of sin, out of the tyranny of Satan, out of a darkened understanding to the things of God. Instead of that, we're in his marvelous light. So this is the call of God that's described as effectual because it results in a transformed life. Here's how, this isn't on your outline, but here's how the Baptist Catechism describes the effectual calling. It says, effectual calling is the work of God's spirit by which convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds and the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he persuades and enables us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. There's so much hope in that little sentence, kind of a big sentence, but there's so much hope there. So it tells us that the Spirit of God works in our lives in such a way to make it clear that we are sinners, that we are guilty before God, and we need His Spirit to show us that. We have a tendency to excuse ourselves for all kinds of things or blame somebody else for the way I act. The Spirit of God says, no, it's your fault. You're the one who's acting that way. So the Spirit of God convicts us of our sin. He shows us that. And then the Spirit doesn't just leave us there, but enlightens our minds to Jesus Christ as the one who paid the price for that sin the one who died as the Savior and Lord. And then the Spirit, it says, persuades us of the truth of these things and then enables us to receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And the whole idea here is since we are dead and trespasses and sins, every person is spiritually dead because of sin, that call from salvation has to come from God. It can't come from us we don't have enough in us to save ourselves. Nobody is good enough for God. We can't manufacture it on our own. So we thank God that he's the God of mercy and grace, and he loves to show himself gracious to sinners like us. He loves to call people who are completely unworthy to be his children and be a part of his household. Church is made up of the ones that God has called out then. Next, we see that the church is the treasured possession of the triune God. Treasured possession of the triune God. Paul says it is the church of, so I'm especially focusing on those, that two letter word right there, the church of the living God. The church actually belongs to the living God. The originator and the owner of the church is God himself. It's not an assembly of people who worship dead idols, false deities, we worship the one true and living God. We are the treasured possession of the triune God, the treasured possession of the Father, the Son, the spirit. Let me give you a couple examples of that. God the Father shows his eternal love for the church in Ephesians chapter one, verse three through six. It says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His grace, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. So, in love, God the Father predestined us to adoption as sons. I mean, that's an unbelievable, amazingly true statement. God the Son, Ephesians 5.25 says, He loved the church and gave himself up for the church. And John 10, we read that Jesus Christ laid down his life for his sheep, talking about his church. So the church is called also then the body of Christ. We are his. God the Spirit is the one who brings every believer into the church. He's the one who brings us all into the family of God. When Jesus spoke of how we must be born again, he described it as being born of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 says, by one Spirit, we are all baptized into the body of Christ. So the Holy Spirit brings us into the church and then indwells us so that we can walk in that new life that he's called us to. So we are the called out ones. We are the treasured possession of the triune of the living God. Finally, Paul tells us that the church is the pillar and support of the truth. Pillar and support of the truth. The pillar, and support or buttress or foundation. Uh, these are architectural terms. The buttress more seems to be especially emphasizing maybe the more maybe the more the foundation of the building. And, of course, his foundation is, of course, absolutely essential to the overall stability and structure of any building. The pillars stand upright on the foundation as columns and give the building uh, structure, beauty. Um, the truth here is fundamentally that the word of God, the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is, that's what he's talking about when he says that we, that, that we are a support of the truth we're talking about the scriptures. The church does not produce the truth, God does. The scriptures of the Old and New Testaments are inspired by God, not by the church. I'm reminded of a very simple yet profound truth that we find in the children's catechism, which is on your outline. Simple question, who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. All scripture is given and inspired by the one true and living God. But it's also true that God the Spirit inspired holy men to write those words. Paul tell, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1.20 that the scriptures were not given by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Tying into the imagery here from 1 Timothy 3, Paul tells us over in Ephesians 2, we are God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. So, being built on the foundation of the prophets, apostles and prophets, is talking about the scriptures. Again, it's what he's talking about there. So, this is reminding us God used prophets like Moses and David and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel to write those scriptures. He used apostles like Matthew, like John, like Paul, like Peter, to write, to reveal truth. So what a privilege is, We have a book that is rightfully called the Word of God. And with that privilege of having that book, the church has great responsibility. So first is this. The church is to believe, uphold, and practice the truths of the scriptures. So to be the pillar and support of the truth means, first off, that the church is to believe the truth. I mean, we trust that the scriptures really are the word of God. We're to give great attention to understanding the scriptures, to be clear about what they say. Patrick Fairbairn reminds us of, of what the scriptures are. He says, The truth is not of the church's making, but of God's revealing. She has it, not as of her own, but from above, and has it not to alter or modify at her own will, but to keep it as a sacred treasure for the glory of God and the good of men. We receive the scriptures as the divine revelation from God. We don't have the right to change it to fit our personal preferences. We don't sit in judgment of the scriptures. We receive them and uphold them as God's sacred treasure. It may feel sometimes that we talk about the Bible too much. I don't know. But that's our job. I mean, one of the main characteristics of the church is to be the pillar and support of truth. So the scripture is going to have to have a key role in any local church if it's being what it's supposed to be. And we don't just seek to understand the scriptures. We do that. But it's not just enough just to understand it as a church of a living God we also seek to regularly apply those scriptures to our lives. I mean, one of the key themes of this letter that Paul wrote to Timothy is the call to live godly lives. Godliness, we're going to look at that here again. It shows up again. You simply can't live live a godly life just because you try to. And you can't do it separate from the word of God. You surely can't do it separate from the church. God has told us that the word of the Lord will endure forever. He's going to sovereignly see to that, but one of the primary means he uses to that end is the church, which is the pillar and support of the truth. Second responsibility we can see for the church here is this. The truth is to be rightly proclaimed by the church, rightly proclaimed. In 1 Timothy, Paul focuses on the need for pastors and elders to teach sound doctrine, We're to teach and hear and understand the truth as it's revealed in God's word, that includes speaking against teachings that are not consistent with the Bible. There's a place where we're given biblical answers to errors that are being circulated. And if you look over in the second letter to Timothy, on chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, Paul says this, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke. Exhort with great patience and instructions. So, this is a serious and solemn responsibility that we have before God. We've also noted, as we look through the responsibility of the elders, that they have to be able to teach. That's tied into this. The church is the pillar and support of the truth. They need to know the word, need to be able to study the word, need to be able to explain the word. And we also saw tied into that that the reasons that deacons were first introduced in Acts chapter 6 in the early church was to give the apostles time that they needed. Wanted to make sure the service was, was accomplished because that was important. But to make sure the apostles had the time to devote themselves to the word and to prayer. It's the same basic idea, that same basic um, priority that's given. As God's treasured possession, because that's who we are as his church, he wants his people to know his word, to know his commands, his promises, to understand his ways. He calls us to grow in understanding, our application of the truth. Every Christian is supposed to be a growing Christian, and that will not happen apart from the scriptures. Well, after Paul gives this really beautiful description of the church, he reminds them of another confession of faith that the early church shared that they had. We've noted the presence of several statements of faith earlier that are called trustworthy sayings in this letter. There's another one to come in this letter and a couple more in uh, 2 Timothy and Titus. But we now have another example of a shared confession. He introduces it as a common confession. In other words, it was something that the church of a living God believed in common. He gives an example of the church as the pillar and support of the truth. It was probably sung as a hymn. He further introduces this great confession by saying, great is the mystery of godliness. This is a very direct reminder that what we, what we believe goes hand in hand with how we live. Godliness has more to do with how we live. It also describes what godliness is, but it has to do with how we live out that godliness. Because if one is going to live a godly life, then they've got to be clear about what the truth is. We are in a day where we're being constantly encouraged, as you know, to do what feels right. We're supposed to follow our hearts, supposed to be true to ourselves. If you do those things, I guarantee you will be deceived. You will be deceived if you do that. We are not to conduct ourselves based on what feels right to us. We conduct ourselves based on the truths of the scripture. Furthermore, the godliness that Paul is speaking of is called the mystery of godliness, That's a reference to the truth of scripture that's focused on the person and work of Jesus Christ. There's no such thing as godliness apart from Jesus Christ, and that's what this whole common confession that Paul speaks of is about. Jesus is that mystery that's revealed. It's not mystery in the sense that you can't know it. It's a mystery that's been revealed, and this confession is part of the revealing of the mystery. So after looking at the character and mission of the church, we now look more closely at the message of the church. So our second main point is the message of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. This confessional hymn uh, in verse 16 consists of six lines. It seems best to see the lines as three pairs of contrasting couplets. And each couplet contrasts earthly and heavenly aspects of the subject of the truth that that it's speaking of first couplet is this, he who was revealed in the flesh, contrasted with, was vindicated in the spirit. So we can sum up the first couplet this way, Jesus Christ was revealed in the flesh in the world, and his salvation work was fully accomplished and confirmed by the spirit. So Jesus Christ is the ground for all godliness. So we begin with confessing and acknowledging, remembering his incarnation. So here we have the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, creator of the world, the one who is full of glory, the one who's the judge of the world, the one who is without beginning and without end, this one is revealed to the world in the flesh. All mankind, as we know, is guilty of sin before God. Sin only increases day by day. There's no way that ungodly people like us could ever be in a right relationship with God. We can never be good enough for God. So in the fullness of time, the Son of God took on human flesh. He took on all the essential properties of man, but he was without sin. Conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, he was born He was fully God because he was and is the son of God. He was fully man because he was born of a woman. He was revealed in the flesh. In him, all the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. Just amazing to even remind us to even even try to conceive of that. But it's reality. And it's an earthly reality because it took place on the earth. Well, that truth is contrasted with the fact that he was vindicated in the spirit. The Holy One who was revealed in the flesh, as you know, was crucified as a substitute for sinners. The Lord calls the iniquity of us all to fall on him as the perfect sacrifice. He died, but he didn't stay dead. Being vindicated in the spirit seems to speak mostly, primarily of his resurrection Romans 1.4 says this, Christ was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Romans 8.11 speaks of the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, and spirit is speaking of the Holy Spirit. So it was by his resurrection that salvation was completely completed, provided, for all who would believe in him. This is the heavenly aspect of this first truth. The second couplet is this, seen by angels proclaimed among the nations. So from here we see this, both heavenly angels and earthly nations have borne witness to Jesus as the Christ. This couplet is speaking of the witnesses of Christ from both the heavenly and earthly levels. Angels, of course, were very active in the birth of Christ. The angel Gabriel announced to Mary that she would conceive in her womb and bear a child, and she was to name him, name him Jesus. Another angel appeared to Joseph after it was confirmed that his wife to-be was pregnant. and the angel affirmed to him, "The child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from the sins, from their sins." the angel said that. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem, angels filled the sky, announced to the shepherds, today in the city of David, there is born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. There was an innumerable host of angels praising the Lord for the coming of the Savior. An angel appeared to Jesus to strengthen him as he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. Angels witnessed the resurrection and sat by the empty tomb. Angels comforted the disciples, Whenever he ascended into heaven. And presently, we see in the book of Revelation that angels are singing to the Lord, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. And of course, when Jesus returns the second time, all the angels will come with him. So Jesus was and is and continues to be seen by the angels. They have excelled in bearing witness to Jesus as the Christ. That's a heavenly reality. Then we see that Jesus was proclaimed among the nations. This is the great commission that Jesus gave. His disciples are to regularly bear witness of him as Savior and Lord to those who have not heard. book of Acts makes it clear to us of the need to bear witness of him. It says from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. So there's both a heavenly and an earthly witness to Jesus as the Christ. The final couplet is this. Believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So here we see that Jesus Christ has been believed on for salvation by sinners in the world and exalted as the reigning king in the heavenlies. This couplet speaks of how Jesus has been received. John 1.12 says, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul told us in the first chapter of this letter, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost. He's saying, I believed in him. He came to save sinners. I trusted in him. That's the hope for all of us. I mean, it's the it's a glorious hope over and over. In the scriptures, sinners are, gloriously, are, are graciously exhorted to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. So for over 2,000 years, people from nations all over the world have heard the gospel and trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. Psalm 86.9 uh, is printed on our prayer sheet every week. It's right there at the top. Read it this week to remind yourself of it. It's an important reminder of this truth, basically. It says, all nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. I mean, praise God, there are many, many who have believed on him in the world, and there's many more to come who are going to believe. Then from the heavenly perspective, we are told he's taken up in glory. This speaks of when Jesus ascended into the heavenlies and was seated at the right hand of the Father as the messianic king over all. Earlier this morning, we read from Acts chapter 2, and there Peter was quoting from Psalm 110, which says this, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. We're living in the until time. That is what is taking place now. We live in the time that Christ is graciously transforming his enemies into willing disciples. Here's what it says in Daniel, there's just one more passage I want to read. This is just an amazing passage. <coughs> Daniel says this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. He came up, this is the ascension, he came up, to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed." That's what it means to be taken up in glory. That's a vision those are the kind of passages we probably should read more regularly. There's all kinds of, I know we don't see read newspapers much anymore, but we see news or, well, whether it's true news or not, that's, a, that's another issue. But we see things that are presented to us about things, and some are factual. Maybe some things are probably not factual. But what we have to deal with, what is the reality is going on, is that Jesus Christ is in the heavenlies right now, sitting at the right hand of God. And all dominion and power and authority has been given to him, to your Lord and Savior, to the one whose we are his church. That's a greater reality than whatever is going on in other places in the world. Those things are real, too. I'm not saying they're not real. But the primary reality is that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, and he loves his church. This whole common confession speaks to us, speaks to the church of the living God of the mystery of godliness. It speaks to us of the fact that Jesus Christ speaks of us in his humiliation. It also speaks to us of his exaltation. It reminds us of who we are in Christ. It reminds us of the message of the gospel. It reminds us of the mission of the church. And it's the truth that motivates us then to live godly lives. It's the truth that gives us a firm anchor, no matter how many things are going topsy-turvy around us. It's the truth that informs us how we are to conduct ourselves in and as the household of God, the church of the living God. Lord, we thank you very much for, what, for the, just the grace, just the unbelievable riches of your grace that are laid out for us in these couple verses. Just remarkable. It's the kind of thing that, I don't know, I I don't know how many people are like me, but I read those things and think, man, that's, you know, and you get so excited about that. Then I kind of come back down to earth and said, yeah, but. Lord, deliver us from the yeah buts. Help us to actually see you for the victorious Christ that you are. Help us to understand what a privilege it is to be a part of your church, to be a part of your household, to be the church of the living God. Lord, help us to see and understand and be more interested in that mystery of godliness. The things that we talked about that are included in that common confession are not new things. They're things that we know. They're the basics of the Christian faith. But we're told here, it's presented to us as things we need to not forget. We need to be reminded of these. That's why it's a common confession. We need to be reminded of it regularly. Lord, increase our faith. Help us to walk consistently as your people in this world. If you're one who's never put your faith in Jesus Christ, a prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I am a sinner. I have not measured up at all to what you've called me to be. And I thank you that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I submit my life to him as the Lord of my life, who I will follow for the rest of my days. If you want to talk in more detail about that, about that faith in Christ, you can make a note on your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is in the name of Christ,